This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Daphne, how's it been going for you? Uh, it's been going well. Uh, I think I get less sleep preparing for a journal club than I do on call. Because <laughs> you procrastinate. You? you procrastinate for journal club. Well, but I get it done. I no, it I, done. I'm, not, I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying you're not. But we have different. Stress- we have different styles. I would say. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's right. Um, well, I'm a foreigner. I, I panic if I have to read massive amounts of English stuff uh, yeah, yeah, a few yeah. hours before recording. That may be um, true, but your, I mean, your English <laughs> proficiency is just fine. So. <laughs> um, we want to start the show by highlighting a poll that we ran on our Twitter account. Um, we asked you guys if you would be interested in podcasts and episodes and guests addressing healthcare worker burnout slash moral injury. And we were stunned by the response. Thank you for um, for taking the time to answer the survey. Um, about 80% of you said yes, uh, 60% of which said absolutely. <laughs> um, 11% of you were, I guess, indifferent, saying why not, and only 10% were not interested. So uh, taking into account this, this uh, overwhelming uh, enthusiasm for uh, addressing this issue of moral injury and burnout in medicine, we will be putting out... Um, a few episodes uh, with special guests to talk about that, and uh, we think you you will you will really like them. Um, in other news, we have some major announcements that we want to share with you, and it probably will be uh, it won't do it justice to do it at the opening of a journal club. So uh, we'll record a a little episode midway through the week that we will share on the podcast uh, page, and uh, you can listen to it, and, and and we'll announce some of the changes that are happening. Um, again, making the podcast better, uh, growing, using our, our growing reach to provide more content and uh, more um, tools for the neonatal community. Um, Daphne, anything else to add to that? No, I think that's it. I think we're, we were, we're really loving how people are engaging with us and providing us, you know, suggestions and feedback. And we're really trying to take that all in and, and really run with it. So I think Mm -hmm. um, we have some exciting, exciting things coming up. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Um, let's start journal club. Then we have, we Mm -hmm. have uh, a loaded, a loaded week of, of articles. And so we should not waste um, too much time. Right. Um, I guess the most uh, the, the the thing we should really start with are these new ACOG recommendations, Absolutely. right, for antenatal steroids. Do you yeah. want to tell us about that? Yeah. So I think people should just know <laughs> that um, ACOG put out a new practice guideline regarding the use of antenatal corticosteroids at 22 weeks. So. I'm sure you've all dealt with this in your clinical practice, um, but previously they were not recommending um, 
the administration of betamethasone at a 22 weeks gestation. So um, at 20 and zero weeks to 22 and six weeks of gestation, the previous studies that had been done, which were few, uh, demonstrated no significant reduction in neonatal death and neurodevelopmental impairment with the administration of antenatal corticosteroids. But obviously our practice is changing um, and our ability to do what we do in the NICU is changing. And so they um, have uh, reevaluated that uh, in this last year. So a 2021 systematic review and meta-analysis included 31 retrospective observational studies uh, of 2,200 infants who were delivered at 22 and zero weeks to 22 and six weeks of gestation found that survival among infants born to pregnant individuals receiving antenatal corticosteroids was twice that of infants born to pregnant individuals not receiving antenatal corticosteroids. So um, 39% survival in the babies uh, whose mommies got corticosteroids versus uh, 19.5%. One of the observational cohorts that analyzed over 1,000 live births at 22 and 0 to 22 and 6 uh, found that infants who received antenatal corticosteroids with postnatal life support, so coming to the NICU and being... um, at least evaluated, uh, were more likely to survive than infants who received postnatal life support alone. Um, So many of us were seeing this in our practice. Uh, We were speaking with families and being asked to resuscitate babies at 22 weeks, um, but um, our obstetric colleagues were following the ACOG guidelines, which were not providing steroids. So what they found uh, were that uh, infants who received steroids with postnatal life support Um, had a 38.5% survival uh, versus those who received life support without antenatal steroids, 17.7%. That's huge, right? I mean, 38 to 17. Yeah, astronomical. So while survival without a major morbidity was improved with antenatal corticosteroids, the absolute rate of survival without major uh, morbidity still remains very low. So 4.4% uh, to 1%. So obviously, this is something we'll have to take into account in our um discussions with families. And that's exactly what they're saying. So based on this new literature, the ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine are revising their recommendation regarding antenatal corticosteroid administration at 22 weeks of gestation. Thusly, antenatal corticosteroids may be considered at 22 and zero to 22 and six weeks of gestation if neonatal resuscitation is planned and after appropriate counseling. I think that's the key, right? Yeah, I think that's the one thing. That's the thing that I'm interested, that was very interested about is the fact that they're tying into OB and neonatal and saying, this is a shared decision Mm -hmm. process. Um, And and that's that's what they're saying. So if they should be linked. So if you're going to resuscitate, if that's the plan after you've met as a multidisciplinary team with the family um, and that um, is in uh, in line with the family's wishes, well, then we should, then we should be giving the steroids. And if we're not planning to intervene, well, then maybe we don't need steroids and to put mommies at any of the at that time additional risks, right. Uh, associated with antenatal steroids. Um, and, and you so, may, and you may give it down the road if the mother elects to resuscitate right. closer to 23, 24 weeks. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is nice. Um, I feel like there's so many silos between OB and mm. neonatal mm-hmm. um, when it comes to um, delayed cord clamping and uh, <laughs> suctioning the baby at the, at the shoulder. There's always recommendations that are coming and, and the relationship is never clear. Here, I really like it. 
Well, yeah. they, they have to give steroids if neonatal has been consulted and there's a plan for resuscitation. Love right. that. For sure. And that always, that was always a struggle, right? Where we say, well, you, we're going to do this, right? We, with the family and, mm-hmm. uh, and we have made this decision. Um, but are we, are we giving the baby everything that we can? And, and before that, the data, again, the studies were small. There weren't a lot of babies included. Our survival rates alone in 22 weekers were, were, were different than they are even now, just in the last five years, really. Um, and so I'm glad that we have, you know, some data and that at least we can all be on the, on the same page. And I really experienced this, uh, you know, for example, we didn't even get to counsel these parents at 22 weeks. Um, but when they came in, they signed a consent for C-section, you know? And, and so I, I, what really changed at some of my previous institutions was doing this joint counseling and saying, um, these are the range of options, including, uh, fetal monitoring, intervention for fetal distress, antenatal steroids, and it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but let's take a, a, a real, um, thoughtful approach uh, to individualizing this, individualizing this for families. And if we are planning to resuscitate, then let's give the babies everything, everything in our arsenal, so to speak. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you for going over that. I think, um, I think these are the type of articles that from the neonatal community may slip by unless somebody mentions Mm -hmm. them to you because they're published on the ACOG website. And even on the ACOG website, this was not front and center. So that's <laughs> I'm right. happy that we. <laughs> that's right. That Probably, that potentially some of our obstetric colleagues don't know about the new statement. And right. so um, and at if, least a point for discussion. And I think if I remember correctly, this was actually um, highlighted to us from a Twitter follower. So again, this is where the community is getting together mm-hmm. uh, and providing, providing good resources. Anyway, um, the next paper I really wanted to talk about was um, the paper that actually does not really involve the NICU, but it's, it's, it's in the JAMA network open and it's called Parent Preferences for Transparency of Their Child's Hospitalization Cost. The first author is Hannah Bassett mm-hmm. and the last author is a pediatrician I actually uh, worked with in the past, Alan Schroeder, who's, who's brilliant. Um, and this paper um, was aim to quantify parental preferences for experiences with and perceived barrier to cost transparency. And a secondary objective of the paper was to identify association between patient and family characteristics and cost transparency preferences. I think this was fascinating mm-hmm. because I, I, it was timely for me. I was in the NICU on call. I went to, a, to, the, to the, the room of a baby in the well baby nursery, or I guess in postpartum area, because the baby was with the parents. And I, I spoke to the family about doing phototherapy and the father um, who was a former Navy officer told mm-hmm. me, how much is that going to cost? Mm-hmm. And I was, I was like, I have no idea. It was definitely the right thing to do. The baby met criteria and sure. so on. But it felt like such an appropriate question, right? To say, how much is that going to cost us to have this baby placed on phototherapy? And me having not only not the answer, but having also no idea where to get them the answer from. Totally. Um, that's so I thought that's exactly how I felt when I read this is like, well, we'll get to the punchline, but I, I don't, we don't know. And in fact, right. I've tried to get the data. I tried to do that project as a, as a resident um, in the NICU um, just to see what are the costs for some of the simple things like extra days on pulse oximeter uh, administration of certain medications. And nobody could tell me the answer no. of what it right. cost. 
And so this is from a, a, a group out of Stanford in California. And they looked at, uh, so they conducted a survey between November 2017 and November 2018 in six geographically diverse university affiliate children's hospital. This did not include neonatal intensive care units. So that's why I said it doesn't really involve the NICU. But I do think that parents all around are the same. The reason why they said they did not involve uh, the NICU was because of confounding issues of mothers often being admitted concurrently. Mm -hmm. And so they, they just didn't want to deal with that, potentially having to include the mother's uh, cost in there. Mm -hmm. uh, they had a survey that was uh, available both in English and Spanish. It had 40 items in there. And their primary outcomes were uh, parents' cost transparency preference, which were measured descriptively through survey items assessing their agreement with the importance of knowing this of knowing of I'm sorry of first knowing discussing and considering their personal cost in their child's medical care and these were answered on a 5 point likert scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree and i think their findings were were very important mm -hmm. so they um they had uh, about 523 completed sur surveys and most of their sample were categorized as male uh, non-hispanic latino most parents, and this is um, some of their findings, so most parents, 76% of them, strongly agreed that knowing the cost of their child's care was important. Mm -hmm. So far, very expected. 75% strongly agreed or agreed that a hospital employee should talk to them about the cost they will have to pay for their child's care. In comparison, almost half of the parents, 49%, strongly agreed or agreed that the physician should consider mm -hmm. the parent's cost when making medical decisions for their child. I think this is something that we always say, that we always say we take into account. And on the other hand, we still have, I mean, there's the, the blue book where you can look at cost of things, but I have no idea how much the stuff I'm ordering costs. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming imaging is more expensive than a CBC, but I really don't have any idea. 48% um, strongly agreed that they considered their own costs when making medical decisions for their child. And 75% reported their concern about how much their child's hospitalization would cost them personally. And I think that's terrifying. And it's so mm -hmm. tragic that when a baby or a child is in the hospital, that has to be an additional concern. Mm. I'll just uh, finish up some of their findings. 19% uh, were worried about discussing costs mm -hmm. and that this would hurt the quality of their child's care. Terrifying. Terrifying. That's that should never enter a parent's mind. Fifty-six percent preferred a financial counselor to be the source of information, and I think that's very important, right? I mean, yeah, that's totally reasonable. <laughs> totally reasonable. I do think that the physician is not a financial expert, mm -hmm. and the, the physician should have the tools to make decisions as to what is the, the less cost prohibitive methods of actually achieving the management mm -hmm. um, that the patient needs. And it shouldn't be, we shouldn't become a financial counselor for these parents. These parents deserve financial counselors, people who sure. actually know what they're talking about. And, 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 and so that they don't think we're making decisions exclusively about cost. And so that they don't feel like we feel like they're making decisions exclusively about cost. It's really. And so that brings, that's a great segue because yeah. it brings me to their last result. 48% indicated that they would want to have cost conversations before <laughs> their child received tests and treatment as if, if, um, I mean, because I mean, if you get the treatment, it's like, well, how's that helping me now? I have no decision. <laughs> you gave it already. We're going to get billed. Parents whose child was in the intensive care unit during their admission, um, had higher mean agreement that it was important to know their child's cost of care compared with families whose child was not in the intensive care unit. Um, compared, and then there, there are some, some interesting things, obviously about education, 
which I think are important for us to know, where they said, compared with parents who had not finished high school, all parents educate all parental educational levels were negatively associated with wanting the child's physician to consider costs in medical decision making, mm-hmm. i.e., the more schooling you got done, the less concerned you were with medical costs, which probably you were probably making more money, which yeah. obviously then becomes less of a concern right. as you're as you're more and more uh, well off, I guess. So, um, anything else? Um, the, the the perceived barriers, right? I mean, so yeah. what are the the barriers to this discussion? So perceived barrier to cause discussions were not knowing who to talk to, which is exactly That's my fair. barrier. <laughs> <laughs> of a, and fear of affecting the quality yeah. of their child's care. Unfortunately. Um, although cost transparency has not been part of the traditional family-centered care model, our results suggest that perhaps it should be. And I'm going to leave it at that because heck yes, right? We yeah. pretend to be family-centered, patient-centered, but we have no problem racking up the bills behind their backs. So yeah, Daphna, I'm, I'm sure you love that paper. <laughs> I did. I think it's so important. Well, it's here... Here are my thoughts. Firstly, this is this is obviously based in the American healthcare system, um, which I have my own feelings about. Um, and what we know is that, like for when when I did this project to see what the cost was, what struck me was it's and I misspoke. It's not that they didn't know what things cost. It's that it cost different amounts of money. Uh, for different patients who have different types of insurance or no insurance. So that's really the crux uh, of the issue and why it's so hard to tell parents exactly what things cost is because it changes over time and it depends on who your provider is or if you have a provider for insurance. Um, so it's almost impossible to get a final number before within the yeah. time frame to make a clinical decision. But I think what we can do is we can be sensitive to the extra trauma and financial burden that that families have. We can't just ask them to ignore that when they're already having trouble meeting, you know, making ends meet and they're going to get this catastrophic bill. We had very close friends who the mom was on bed rest for about six weeks um, with twins who were delivered at um, 32 weeks. I mean, their bills and their bills spanned. Uh, two years, right? So God. the babies were born in, let's say, January. Um, and so, but mommy was admitted in December. And so they got like a double double hit. And, and I mean, they had racked up millions of dollars. Wow. How could they ever pay that? We know they're not going to pay that. Our system doesn't expect them to pay that. But even what we expect families to pay is re- a, real, a real burden. And so, you know, the other, my other thought is, what can we, what can we actually do about it? And so, I think there are things that where we can take cost into account. Can we do maybe uh, in the nursery at home bilirubin monitoring instead of staying in the hospital for one more day? So, I think there are ways we can have the conversation with families. Um, but it speaks to how provi- providers need to have transparency. <laughs> what things cost. So I can't even make a recommendation for families because I, mean, I don't actually know. Going, actually, there's a, there's a grocery store that opened in my neighborhood and we went there and they just still hadn't put the price tags on every item. <laughs> and my wife and I were like, what are we supposed to do here? Like, I'm not going to just put stuff in the in the bin until I know that how much things cost. And if you wouldn't accept it from your grocery stores, can you imagine medical bills? This is nuts. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I think we can, I think I I don't think parents are asking us not to do things for their babies based on cost. I think they're trying to say, 
is there a different way where we can be effective and safe that's less expensive? And mm-hmm. and that's totally reasonable. I yeah. just wish I knew where to find the answers for them. <laughs> so that was that was a, that was a very cool paper. Um, yeah. Do you want to go next, or should I should I should I keep going? Yeah, I'll go. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I wanted to do this because this came up again in the unit this week. Uh, monitoring of carbon dioxide in ventilated neonates. Uh, I was hoping you were going to pick that one. <laughs> a perspective observational study. Uh, lead author uh, Tobias Werther, um, and so. Um, this is coming to us from the archives, um, a group uh, in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Vienna in Austria. And um, so what the group uh, set out to do was to assess the reliability, the accuracy, and the precision of um, distal and tidal capnography in neonates compared with transcutaneous uh, carbon dioxide measurements, and again, as it correlates with uh, the baby's blood gas measurements. Um, and so... Uh, they did this on not very many babies, um, but I, I still thought this was a very valuable work. Uh, so they mm-hmm. had 25 babies. Um, the mean gestational age was 32 and six with a range of 28 and three to 40 and zero weeks. Uh, mean weight of 1.4 kilos uh, with a range of uh, one kilo to about 2.9 kilos. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they did was they obtained numerous measurements. So they got the blood gas measurements and they did uh, three measurements of the end tidal CO2 and three measurements uh, at separate time points of the transcutaneous monitoring. And they looked at how did these uh, things correlate. Um, So I'll get you the data. The mean uh, standard deviation of uh, arterial CO2s uh, and tidal CO2s and transcutaneous CO2s was uh, 45, uh, 42, and 50, respectively. So uh, say the average um, blood gas CO2 was 45, uh, the mean, uh, the end tidal CO2 was 42, and the transcutaneous was 50. They also looked at intraclass correlation. Uh, so they looked between the arterial CO2s and the end tidal CO2s. Um, and then the arterial CO2s and the transcutaneous CO2s, and they reached 0.8 and 0.59, respectively. Um, So really what they found um, was that uh, repeated measure correlations um, between the blood gas CO2 and the end tidal CO2 um, had better reliability, accuracy, and precision than those with the transcutaneous uh, CO2s in ventilated neonates on conventional mechanical ventilation um, without really severe lung disease. Um, And so I I thought this was interesting because I've often had that question, um, how can we do less blood gas monitoring? Is transcutaneous the best way to do that? Our adult colleagues and even our PICU colleagues are using end-tidal CO2 with much higher frequencies than than we are. I think Mm -hmm. one of the concerns people have is that we don't use cuffed tubes, um, and they talked about that in this, uh, and the babies did not have cuffed tubes, and in fact, if they had cuffed tubes, they were... Uh, excluded, excluded from the study. Mm-hmm. And in 14% of the babies, uh, the tube leak was greater than 20%. And I'm sure we've all had that experience. And still, um, it didn't really change the accuracy of the end tidal CO2s. And so we're not using end tidal CO2s in our unit. I think it's something we should definitely consider. 
So, thoughts? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this paper. So number one, um, they did something really cool, which I was not familiar with. It's called the Bland-Altman mm -hmm. analysis. And basically, this statistical analysis provides a measure of bias and precision. And so what was interesting is that the bias gives you how off the values uh, you're trying to compare are on average. Mm -hmm. And so when they looked at the comparison for, for uh, N-tidal CO2 and PaCO2, um, the, the, the bias was minus 2.7. And when they compared transcutaneous and PaCO2, it was 5.4. Mm -hmm. And then they do something called precision, which is basically looking at the range of values that you could get in and around the, 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 the control value, in this case would be the PaCO2. And when they compared N-tidal with PaCO2, the Blend-Altman precision was 10.6 uh, millimeters of mercury. And when they compared transcutaneous to PaCO2, it was actually 17.2. Mm -hmm. So like, as you said, N-tidal um, CO2 was better at correlating with um, blood measurements of CO2. Now, like you said, there's a few, um, not issues, but there's a few items with this study that we need to highlight for our listeners. Number one, you mentioned the fact that it was small, right? 27 mm -hmm. patients. The other thing they did is that they used double lumened mm -hmm. ET tubes, where basically one of the lumens was connected to the entitle and the other to the ventilator. Um, I'm not sure what that means, practically speaking, if we were to do the same thing with a single lumen ET tube, which is what I've always used when I was in the right. NICU. Um, and so from a technical standpoint, I'm not sure if that makes any difference. So again, like I said, they're not issues, but just a little caveats that we have to highlight. And then obviously the big, big topic of discussion is how, so, so the, the entitled CO2 is related to a little cannula that mm -hmm. goes into a, a sampler. That increases dead space mm -hmm. significantly as the baby gets smaller and smaller or as the baby gets more and more into that BPD range. And they address it, right? I mean, they talk about that in their limitation. In the discussion, they said, as for the entitled CO2, we did not explicitly exclude patients with severe lung disease that could augment physiologic dead space, which in turn may lead to low entitled CO2 values. So having the machine there influences your measurements at extremes of patient care, mm -hmm. whether you're extremely small and if you're pulling from the tube two, three mLs to measure to make your sampling, that's very significant mm -hmm. tidal volume, or if you have severe BPD. So um, that's something that people have, I'm not, I'm not coming up with that issue. Obviously, this is something that the authors were very aware of and they are addressing it, but this is always the ongoing issue with the use of entitled CO2 in the NICU. I'm not sure if technology is going to provide at some point a manner in which we can measure entitled CO2 without having to um, really on a continuous basis uh, pull so much, um, pull so much uh, volume from the ET tube. However, we may have a need to do so just because of the fact that the transcutaneous, number one, is expensive. Mm -hmm. If you guys have used it, it works 50% of the time. I think that's about accurate. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you have and to- the, And the RTs hate having to put it on. Right. They always <laughs> fall off and then they, they heat up, right? I mean, mm -hmm. for people who don't know this, right? The transcutaneous CO2 has to be uh, at a specific temperature in order to measure the transcutaneous levels of CO2. And that's 41 degrees Celsius, right. which- which is hot. Yeah. Which <laughs> if is you not, take your shower. Which is not the temperature of the babies. <laughs> no, which if you take your temperature, your water, your shower at with water at 41 degrees Celsius, it's, it's burning hot. So 
Uh, obviously, the therapists are aware of this, and that's why they have to constantly rotate the probe from one area to the next. We have to use these uh, rings that are stuck onto the baby's that's skin, right. which, again, can provide uh, damage as they get removed. So there's definitely a need to think more creatively when it comes to uh, transcutaneous CO2, and maybe entitled is the way. But I also don't... So I think what they're showing is that for a specific category of patients, it works. I don't know how we're going to be able to un to roll this out to the rest of the patient population. It's a very cool paper. Yeah. I mean, I think what it shows is that actually transcutaneous CO2, when it's working, is 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 reasonable. It, it works pretty well, but right, it needs to be recalibrated every four hours. It's it's time intensive for the smallest babies who are in humidity. It's almost impossible because the the things just don't they just don't stick. Um, so we can't really get uh, good measurements. But you know, there are babies where where it really works for and it and, and it saves us time. And I think you're right in the smallest babies and the biggest babies, this not may not be the right technology, but we have a whole bunch of babies who are living in between who, you know, people are getting daily gases, multiple times a week gases with no other yeah. lab needs. Um, and, and, you know, like everything in medicine, the trend is valuable. And, and when we talk about trauma informed care, if we can do something that is uh, reasonably effective uh, without having to stick those babies uh, as often, I, I think we definitely have to look into it. Absolutely. The only other thing I wanted to mention about this study is they did indicate uh, that uh, they had 27 babies enrolled, but at some point in time, two parents withdrew their consent. And I thought it was interesting that they mentioned that. And I think um, since we're a team of people who who looks at studies, um, uh, I think we it begs the question, how do we, how do we really talk about, do we do a good job of talking to parents about these studies? This is a, what I perceived myself as a neonatologist, a low risk study, right? With potentially, yep. uh, potentially a benefit to the baby, right? Maybe better monitoring, not for these babies, they were going to get the same number of, of, of lab draws, but, um, uh, but potentially for those babies after enrollment, things like that. And, and yet parents withdrew their, their consent. Um, I think neonatologists, especially, um, pediatricians, we, um, we don't feel like, you know, maybe we're not the best at, at enrolling patients <laughs> into, into studies, you know, um, we're, we're focused in care. We're focused on, uh, knowing, um, that parents are having to make decisions for their children. Um, they're totally overwhelmed in the ICU, especially uh, for their critical ill babies. Um, but so I just thought I would mention it. Something we I think there's, there's uh, something to be said when the studies involve, uh, therapeutics where you say, Hey, we're going to give your baby a medication right. that might help versus we're going to do some tests on your baby. Yeah. Um, I think regardless of what you're talking about, if you're a parent and you say, Hey, we're going to do some tests on your baby. It's like, yeah, I'm, I don't want to do I'm much more reluctant. I That's know. Right. Yeah. Um, we, I, I want to get to so many papers. I'm going to, is it okay if we move to the next yeah, one? Yeah, please. All right. So I want to talk about this one again, which is not uh, going to change your practice, but, um, it's called, it's from the journal of pediatrics. Mm. It's called medication use in the mm -hmm. neonatal intensive care unit and changes from 2010 to 2018. First author, Ashley Stark, this comes from the pediatrics group. Um, Reese Clark is one of the mm -hmm. authors in the group as well. And so this paper just goes over. Um, the pediatrics registry and looks at the changes in medication use over the past, over eight years, right? From mm -hmm. 2010 to 2018. And it reminded me when I was a kid and on the weekends, I would just look at 
the standings of the NBA teams, right? And <laughs> you could just like look at what people are doing. Yeah. And and it's the data itself, like I said, is not very useful from a practice standpoint, right? Because it's just what uh, people are doing all across these pediatrics unit. And so why some things were ordered and not others, you don't have that information, but it's interesting as to what the trends are. So, and they present the data again, like, like, um, like the top 100 of, of, uh, hit records, right? It's That's just, right. it's just cool. The so charts, table, right. <laughs> I know yeah, the, the charts, the top of the charts. So table two, table two is the medications most commonly used in the NICU ranked by exposure and one and two take the, the lead the pack with empingent, which mm-hmm. fine. Number three is caffeine. Number four is surfactant. And then number five is morphine. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised by that, right? I mean, I was not expecting that. Uh, Lasix is seventh. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl is eighth. And the one that surprised me the most was ibuprofen, right? I mean, ibuprofen, I thought we, we use it pretty often for PDAs. We don't use indomethacin as much and Tylenol is still being worked up. Ibuprofen is number 55, mm-hmm. falling below phenylephrine. And, That's right. And, and, Some and, things I uh, have never used. <laughs> I know, I know. And so it's, it's very cool. Um, the, um, so there's, there's, you can go through this list and, and, it's, kind of, and it's kind of neat. Um, then there's more information being provided. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have the table three is the most commonly used medications in the NICU for ELBW. And this is where, um, again, you can find some things that are a bit uh, puzzling. Number one, empangent and caffeine still top three. Number four is vancomycin over surfactant. And I was surprised by that, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're an ELBW surfactant, I was expecting to really be competing for number one spot. Um, Again, ibuprofen on this list for ELBWs is number 40, uh, which which was surprising. And um, EPO is number 27. Um, You have uh, dobutamine, number 32. Nitric oxide is number 34. And the one I wanted to mention was uh, dexamethasone was number mm-hmm. 16. So that, that, that's also, again, some interesting, um, some interesting aspects of, of the patterns of use of these medications. And then they had the relative and absolute increase in exposure. And yeah. I thought these were I also thought that very was really cool. All right. So they had the absolute increase in exposure between 2010 and 2018. And the first one was surfactant. Number two was morphine, which was surprising. Number four was glucose gel, which was nice to see. Um, number seven was clonidine. Number eight was acetaminophen. Number nine was uh, dexamethasone. But then when you look at the relative increase, mm-hmm. so meaning the percent change, uh, not just in absolute numbers, but from what they were in 2010 versus what they are in 2018, number one is Presidex. Mm-hmm. How funny was that? Percent change, 5,000%. Number two was clonidine. Number three was rocuronium, which was puzzling. Number four was not as surprising. It was Kepra, right? I mean, we've seen the shift mm-hmm. between phenobarbuse and Kepra in the NICU. Uh, number five was atropine, which I thought was interesting, right? Because I'm assuming this has to do with intubation. Mm-hmm. And that means that people are pre-medicating their baby, which is, which is good. Great. Um, and then ceftriaxone had a large uh, relative increase, which I was surprised to see. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how you felt about that one. Well, and given gonna, one of our I'm, upcoming papers, maybe not so surprising. 
That's right. <laughs> um, and then um, the the again the surfactant is on there, obviously. But anyway, I'm going to stop talking. It's just, if you haven't seen this paper, check it out. It's just cool to peruse the table and be like, huh, that's yeah. an interesting, and, and to see which which of your favorite meds fall <laughs> <Where they're. laughs> high or how low on the table. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I thought, especially some of these little one-offs were, were interesting, that AMP and Gent are still the first and second most used medications, but also the greatest absolute decrease from 2010 and to, to 2018, which just goes to show you how many babies still get antibiotics, right? It's still, it has the greatest decrease over time, and yet, and yet it's still one and two. Um, and then and even, I, and even for ELBWs, right? Because right. initially you can think, well, there's maybe more full terms in the baby that are here for rule out sepsis. So maybe Ampengen makes sense. But even in the high risk category of ELBWs, they still are number one. Mm-hmm. Gent being first, by the way. That's right. Gent being first. first. How yeah. crazy is that? <laughs> um, and, you know, I really. Filling those nephrons <laughs> one at a time. That's right. I really appreciated their discussion on nearly all infants admitted used a medication that was off-label. And it's just a reminder of the state of neonatology, right? That that um, so much of what we're doing is is still off-label. It works, um, but, you know, we, we don't necessarily have, have all the data that we would have expected to use a medication in any other population. Um, right. And so it, you know, it's, it complicates our work, I think. Uh, they don't study the... Um, medication interactions, but, but we're, but we're giving them, (laughs) we're giving them. And for some of our babies, they're getting a lot of medication. Um, and so I thought it was a, it was a good study just to see. I know. I I actually enjoy browsing this paper. I can tell. (laughs) Well, uh, maybe that brings us to talking about, uh, this other, uh, paper in pediatrics, early onset sepsis among very preterm infants. Um, lead yes. author, uh, Dustin D. Uh, Flannery. And, uh, Which is a Twitter friend of ours. Yes. And so if you're not following Dustin on Twitter, go right ahead. He's a great follow. Um, and so this came out of CHOP. And so what, what they're looking at is to determine the kind of current state of the epidemiology and microbiology of early onset sepsis among very preterm uh, infants. Um, so they looked at babies weighing 401 to 1500 grams and or 22 to 29 weeks gestation. So you either uh, qualified by weight or by gestational age. Mm-hmm. And you were admitted um, between January 2018 to December 2019, so re- relatively recently, in one of uh, the 753 Vermont Oxford Network centers. Um, and so what? why were they doing this? So obviously, early onset sepsis is a significant cause of morbidity and mortality. And could the epidemiology be changing uh, such that we may need to change our empiric antibiotic therapy? So I thought this was... Really yeah, it was right in line with what we were just yeah, talking about. Exactly. Um, and so I told you about the makeup of the babies. There were 753 centers included in 49 states. Uh, and again, this is using the Vaughn database. Early onset sepsis was defined as a culture confirmed infection of the blood or CSF by a pre specified bacterial pathogen uh, in the first three days after birth. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. They also looked at two secondary outcomes, survival without morbidity by using, uh, again, the Vaughn Manual of Operations Definition. So that includes survival without any of the following, neck, 
chronic lung disease, a severe IVH, pneumothorax, late onset sepsis, cystic PVL, um, and survival with major neonatal morbidity. So again, chronic lung disease, IVH, PVL, and severe retinopathy of prematurity. Um, and they did define all of those. So that's something for you to look at. And subsequently, they looked at covariants, uh, covariates, including race and ethnicity, maternal health, uh, comorbidities, chronic hypertension, preeclampsia, diabetes, choreo, did mommy get prenatal care, antenatal steroid administration, SGA, length of stay, and congenital anomalies. So they had a total of 84,000 infants, a median birth weight of 1,100 uh, grams, median gestational age of 28 weeks, median length of stay of 66 days. And so what they found was that uh, 1,139 infants uh, had early onset sepsis. So that was an incidence rate of about 13.5 per 1,000 births, obviously highest for infants less than or equal to 23 weeks. Um, so let me tell you, I guess, let me get to the major punchline, right? So mm -hmm. uh, what were the pathogens? So E. coli, number one. 46.5% yes. uh, of early onset sepsis. GBS, uh, eight down to 18.8%. And then 34% were other, uh, included homophilus species um, and predominantly uh, the Staph aureus species, either MSSA or MRSA. Yeah, then this was scarier. Of, of <laughs> yes, and and I'll get to the probably the scariest point, but let me tell you about some of the other data. But comparison of infants with and without early onset sepsis. So, not surprisingly, infants with early onset sepsis were more often born vaginally to mothers without uh, with choreo and without some of the other comorbidities, hypertension, multiple gestation. Infected infants were also less often to be SGI less often to be SGA. There were no major differences in sex, race, or ethnicity between the two groups. Lengths of stay were longer for infants with early onset sepsis compared with uninfected infants. 92 days versus 66 days. That is, that's a lot. That's and then looking at some of their other outcomes, infants with early onset sepsis had lower rates of survival to hospital discharge, 67% compared to 90%. Infants with early onset sepsis were more than twice as likely to survive to hospital discharge without morbidity compared with infants uh, with early onset sepsis. Um, and then those babies with early onset sepsis who did survive to discharge were at significantly increased risk for at least one or greater major neonatal morbidity. And again, those are chronic lung disease, IBH, PVL, ROP when compared to babies without early onset sepsis. The other interesting uh, details that the incidence of early onset sepsis was inversely related to gestational age. So almost one in 20 infants born at less than 23 weeks had early onset sepsis. So obviously a major cause of preterm labor. In contrast, one of every 100 infants born at 28 to 29 weeks were infected. Um, and then greater uh, babies born at greater than 29 weeks, uh, the incidence declined further to one in every 200 to 250 infants. Same incidence of early onset sepsis was also inversely related to birth weight. Um, and so in general, babies who were smaller had early, had uh, higher incidences of early onset uh, sepsis. Um, 
this was not true for babies, uh, very preterm babies who were born weighing greater than 1500 grams. Um, so if you were small, but of a good size, you were less likely to have early onset sepsis. And then what I think was probably the takeaway point is that um, previous studies, not necessarily this study, they didn't actually do the sensitivities, but uh, E. coli is becoming resistant to both AMP and GENT. So in, in other studies, almost 8 to 10%. Um, and so if we have uh, you know, almost 50% of babies infected with E. coli and 10% of them are, are resistant to our um, empiric antibiotics. Um, it's definitely something for us to consider, you know, broadening our coverage in those very sick, sick babies. What did you think? Well, I, I agree with everything you said. And I want to jump on the last point you made, because that's the only thing really that I wanted maybe to add something to is you you realize that we may not have as much room to make errors when it comes to mm -hmm. early onset sepsis and our choice of antibiotics in these babies, mm -hmm. because what we treat them with is highly, we need to treat these infections effectively mm -hmm. with the proper antibiotics, especially when you consider that in relationship to NEC. And you see that in the cohort, their patients uh, who had early onset sepsis were more likely to have neck, 6.1% uh, mm -hmm. versus 4.7%. And so if you think about bacterial translocation as a mechanism of NEC, it makes sense that if your E. coli is resistant right. and you poorly treat it, you expose the baby to more and more severe potential infections down the road. Um, so I think this was, this was a, again, there's not much to add. You, you went over everything and the paper is very robust. It doesn't mm -hmm. pretend, that's, the, that's, that's why I think Dustin is really good. The paper doesn't pretend to be something it's not, right? It's just telling you what it's going to do. It does it very, very well. That's right. And it gives you enough information to think about stuff. And it gives you, it leaves you wanting more studies to be done to mm -hmm. find out like what's the next step. So that's really, really cool. yeah. And I think it, um, you know, all of us have different um, uh, resistance patterns, right? And so that's something that we can we can all do today is is see what are the resistance patterns in our area in our NICUs and in determining, you know, are you a, a high resistant NICU or a low resistant NICU, and 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 maybe maybe in in certain groups until we have more data, we may still have to be changing some of our uh, empiric antibiotics or in the babies that are getting worse and not better, um, changing our, our antibiotic choice. Very interesting. Yeah. Your turn. Um, my turn. Fine. Um, let's talk about, there's many, there's many articles, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, we can talk about Presidex and that paper mm -hmm. from NYU since we spoke about that medication earlier. And this should be a short one because it's, it's again, it's a small study that's well done. Um, and it's, uh, so this is a paper uh, called, in the Journal of Perinatology, called Dexmetid... Okay, we're going to say Presidex again. This is our usual no, struggle. we've been practicing. Dexmetitomidine. <laughs> Dexmetitomidine. We got this, it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the only time I'm going to say it. I'm just going to move on from that our, point. Our upcoming guest, Kellyanna, our pharmacist, will be quite proud of us. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, this one is for you. Uh, so dexmeditomidine versus intermittent morphine for sedation of neonates with encephalopathy undergoing therapeutic hypothermia. First author is Anna Kosnahan from NYU in New York. The objective of the study was uh, to uh, basically, the, since March 2019, the sedative of choice for therapeutic hyperthermia at Bellevue and NYU uh, was changed 
from intermittent morphine to uh, Presidex during cooling. And so they wanted to evaluate the impact of this change on the efficacy and safety parameters in neonates undergoing therapeutic hypothermia. This was a retrospective study chart review, and this was conducted between January 2018 and April 2020. Um, you can go over their um, cooling protocols. It's very standard, meaning there's mm-hmm. nothing fishy about it. And all patients um, showed evidence of moderate to severe encephalopathy. So there's no, no mild encephalopathy business to uh, discuss. <clears throat> and uh, the patients were then either on continuous Presidex from March 2019 to April 2020 or on intermittent scheduled morphine uh, in the previous epoch from January 2018 to March 2019. So they go over the different doses and they assessed the baby's um, pain and agitation uh, using the neonatal pain, pain, agitation, and sedation scale, the NPAS. And NPAS scores greater than three were significant for breakthrough agitation and merited breakthrough morphine administration. So both groups were always eligible to get breakthrough morphine, whether you were on morphine mm-hmm. intermittently or on Presidex. And they had the, this whole protocol about titrating the dose of Presidex, depending on side effects, heart rate, uh, lack of response to stimuli, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I thought that again, was very helpful. Yeah. And, and again, it's very standard things um, that uh, you can look into uh, the paper. The primary outcome was to determine if Presidex is an effective agent for sedation and, al- and analgesia for neonates undergoing therapeutic hypothermia for HIE. The efficacy was defined as a reduction in pain scores during therapeutic hypothermia, an overall requirement for cumulative dosage of morphine in milligrams per kilo. Clinical significant reduction in NPAS was defined as a reduction in pain score by one. Mm-hmm. Their secondary outcomes included impact on hemodynamics measure, respiratory support, tolerance of enteral fees after rewarming, and short-term neurological outcomes. So um, let's go into their results. So they had 72 um, patients that were admitted, and uh, they were able to include 70 of them, 34 in the Presidex group and 36 in the scheduled morphine. Um, <clears throat> they talked about the average dosing of Presidex and so on and so forth. Uh, there were no clinical, sig- clinically significant differences in pain scores at any time points and median pain scores at majority of time points was zero. The Presidex group received higher breakthrough morphine, but the total morphine requirement was significantly higher in the morphine group. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very interesting. So basically, the breakthrough morphines were more required in the Presidex group. But at the end of the day, looking at this mm-hmm. in a retrospective fashion, they were exposed less to opioids than if they were on intermittent morphine. And I think that was a, that was, um, a very valuable point. In terms of their hemodynamics measure, there were no difference in heart rates between, the, between Presidex and morphine patients at most time points. Um, and then, um, except for 36, 42, 48, and 72 hours of therapeutic hypothermia, where the morphine group tended slightly higher, but within normal range across both groups. So they're really defining all these different changes, even though they're all remaining um, within the the normal range. There were no difference in mean arterial pressures between the two groups. Uh, There were no differences in oxygen saturation between the two groups. No patient had bradycardia severe enough to turn off Presidex completely, meaning they were able to manage it with just titration. And there were no differences in requirement of vasopressors during therapeutic hypothermia, the number of vasopressors, or the type of vasopressors that needed to be used. In terms of feeding outcome, time to trophic, some enteral and full enteral feeds was similar between the two groups. There were no differences in video EEG patterns post-therapeutic hypothermia, and there were also no detectable differences on MRIs uh, Mm -hmm. post-therapeutic hypothermia. 
And so their conclusion is that Presidex is effective and safe for sedation and analgesia during therapeutic hypothermia, and it reduced, and that I think is the, is the main point, total opioid usage with no increased incidence of adverse events. So a very small study that does a very, very good job and brings mm -hmm. a very valuable point to the discussion about management of sedation and analgesia in um, HIV babies. Yeah, I think this was a very important paper. Um, you know, I like Presidex. Um, we, where I trained, we were using it as a first line, especially for babies with HIE. Um, I found in my personal experience <laughs> mm -hmm. that it was very effective for those babies that um, were kind of the mild to moderate versus the moderate to severe babies. Some of our moderate to severe babies don't seem to need any sedation, um, but these kind of hyper irritable babies, the shivering babies, it really seemed to reduce some of that kind of irritability. Um, and we really didn't have to make many accommodations for like this cardiorespiratory changes. Um, mm -hmm. And so we found that very valuable. Parents could still interact a little bit with their babies, which they found very valuable. Um, so in my experience, it's great. I think a lot of places don't know how to start. And so I think this is a valuable paper because they basically gave you their the protocol. titration right. um, protocol. And so um, I think if people are looking to start incorporating it, that this is one way to do it. Obviously, the major concern is uh, long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. Um, I think it's valuable that we have EEGs and MRIs on this baby to at least make kind of a shorter-term comparison. Um, and we do have some animal data. Um, so hopefully we will... Uh, and and we do have the data that opiate long term uh, opiate no use is no good, <laughs> right? So we know that. Um, so this is the conclusion of the meta analysis. It's no good. That's right. It's no good. That's, <laughs> it's, that's the technical. The that's the technical findings. terms they use. No good. <laughs> and so um, I hope we'll get some more long-term studies, but I think this is a good start, um, especially, I mean, so many of the things we use for sedation in our babies are quote unquote, no good, right? So <laughs> we have to find something that works um, and, and, and maybe we'll be able to use it in other populations of our, of our NICU babies. So, yeah. I have two more papers. We're coming to the end, so I'm going to start. We're yeah, going to start brushing through papers. I know you have definitely one that you want to talk about. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about two, and um, maybe maybe uh, I'm going to start with one, and then I'll let you, we'll see if we get to the last one. Mm -hmm. The one I wanted to talk about was published in the Journal of Perinatology, and it was called Survival Prediction Modeling and Extreme Prematurity. Are days important? First author is Timothy mm -hmm. Schindler, um, and this is a paper out of Australia. Interesting question they're asking. The objective of the study was dem to demonstrate that observed survival rates in extreme prematurity increase with each additional day and to show that these observed differences are important when creating survival prediction models based on gestation. Um, it reminded me of my mentor again, who recently mm -hmm. passed away, who used to nail you if you didn't have the weeks and days, days. of everything, right? And, and that's just the way he was paying attention to details. But here, this is a study where they looked at babies uh, 23 <coughs> plus zero to 27 plus six admitted to uh, level three neonatal intensive care units in both Australia and New Zealand. And those units are part of the Australian and New Zealand neonatal network, which is a famous network that has published excellent data over the years. And they looked at data from 20, uh, 2009 to 2016. You can look at their different criteria. And again, because we're short on time, um, I'm going to go to the meat of the paper. So they created a prediction model that was uh, created based on the probability of survival. And 
they created this model and it's and it's quite sophisticated and then they plugged into these models the different gestational ages of the babies based on their outcomes and they compared whether using weeks alone versus weeks and days made a difference mm-hmm. so um they had a total of about 8000 infants uh, that met criteria 84% of which survived to hospital discharge the two models estimating the probability of survival were created one model was based on gestation in weeks and days, and the other based on completed weeks only. The model based on weeks alone overestimates survival near the beginning of a gestational week, but underestimated later in the week, which sounds very obvious, right? If you're 23 and zero, it's going to be lower than if you're 23 and six. Fine. The area under the receiver operating characteristics of the AUC was 0.722 for the weeks and days model compared with 0.712 for the weeks only model. And so the one... Um, so the one thing I wanted to uh, highlight is those differences because it comes at a critical juncture when we talk about prenatal counseling, as we discussed at the opening of the episode with the 22-week ACOG recommendation. Mm-hmm. Comparing survival prediction models based on gestation, the model with weeks and days performed better than the model with weeks only. This is more likely to be clinically significant at lower gestations, which is probably, by the way, when you need that model to be more precise when mm-hmm. parents have to make decisions regarding resuscitation That's or not. Right. When rates of survival are lower and difficult decisions are made around provisions of intensive care. For example, and listen to this, 23 and 0 weeks, the weeks only model gives a predicted probability of survival of 54.6%, so over half, compared with a predicted probability of survival of 47.7% in the weeks and days model. At 23 plus 6, the model only gives an estimated probability of 54.6 compared with 61.7% when you use the weeks and days model. So just to recap that a little bit, they have table two. First of all, they have the figure, which is kind of nice because you can see how the the curve is so much more comprehensive when you include days. And then you have table two, which goes over the estimated survival when you use only weeks versus when you use weeks and days. And so I'm going to give the example of the baby at 23 weeks, just so that you can get a sense because it's so dramatic. You have a baby that's at 23 weeks. You don't know how many days. Mm -hmm. The estimated survival based on weeks alone is 55% which if you're a parent, you may say, well, that's over half. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people may say that's enough and I will pursue mm-hmm. intensive care. Some people may say it's not enough and I'm going to pursue um, palliative. But then when you look at weeks and days, estimated survival, when it's 23 weeks plus zero days, it's 48%. So now less than half. Estimated survival when it's weeks plus six days, 62%. And that's a dramatic difference. So yeah. I think for a parent... I mean, again, I, I like numbers. If if I were in this situation, um, I would want to have precise numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was very interesting that we can augment our level of sophistication when we talk about gestational age and outcomes. And um, I thought that was really neat. Yeah, I think it's, it's valuable. I think anytime we can provide more information, that's good. Um, I think like with any discussion with family, it's a, with a grain of salt that not, not everybody's a a numbers person, you know, right. like maybe you or you or me. And so um, asking our families, you know, are, are, are numbers helpful? And if they're helpful, then I think this paper, you know, is very valuable for those types of families. Um, and if they're not, then, then maybe not. We have to find another way to communicate, uh, you know, level of risk and benefit. But, but I've, I've had, I've had these, these, these parents where the dad, the dad is like an engineer. And yeah. when you give them the estimate, they're like, is that point uh, zero or you have That's decimals? Right. <laughs> they want to know exactly. Is it 54.5 exactly. or 54.2? Yeah. And what's your confidence interval there? That's right. 
So I thought that was useful. Um, the last paper I want to talk about, and I'm going to let you close the show because I think the paper you want to mention mm-hmm. is, is an important one. Um, this is a paper that I have to talk about because it's pushed off from the prior week. Uh, it's called Association of Time of First Corticosteroid Treatment right. with Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia in Preterm Infant. This is coming from the Children's Hospital Neonatal Consortium Severe BPD Focus Group. And what was very interesting is that um, this paper looked at variation in timing of corticosteroid initiation and BPD in a recent multicentered cohort of preterm infants treated with corticosteroids. Their hypothesis, which I thought was interesting, was that among preterm infants treated with corticosteroids after seven days of life, they assumed that later treatment is associated with increased risk of BPD at 36 mm-hmm. weeks postmenstrual age. So they looked at babies between 2010 and 2016. They were all less than 32 weeks. And um, they identified them based on whether they received steroids, whether it was dexamethasone or hydrocortisone. The primary outcome was BPD, and it was defined um, based on the Jensen criteria, which we've mm-hmm. had on the show now. It's very That's cool right. to say that. Very um, cool. They looked at the exposure based on timing, and they created several groups. So you either received steroids from between day 8 and 21, between day 22 and 35, between day 36 and 49, and beyond 50 days. And this was based on postnatal age in days when the first dose of corticosteroids was given, right? So we're talking about their first initial course. And because we don't have time, I'm not going to go into the details uh, too much, but I'm going to give you the main results. So they identified about 600 corticosteroid-treated infants. Of these, 47% were treated at 8 to 21 days. 25% were first uh, treated at 22 to 35 days. 14% 14% at 36 to 49, and 14% were treated beyond 50 days. So obviously, we have a majority of babies treated early, and that decreases as time goes on. Infants treated at 36 to 49 days and beyond 50 days had a higher independent odds of developing grade 2 or 3 BPD when compared to infants treated at 8 to 21 days after adjusting for birth characteristics, admission characteristic, center, and comorbidity. And so I think that was interesting because I think this paper um, doesn't tell you that everybody should be on steroids, but I think we do have risk assessment calculators that can assess the long-term risk of VPD. And I think that has definitely to be used more readily in the first uh, two weeks of life to assess whether a baby may be a candidate for early steroids treatment, because you can see that sometimes you think, oh, if this baby doesn't need steroids, it will be better, but delaying it might actually not be as beneficial for that child. Um, again, they're not really teasing apart um, which one is better, obviously, hydrocortisone right. versus dexamethasone, which, again, that's not the point of that of that paper. But it was very interesting. They have nice graphs, um, and, and I suggest uh, you check out, check out that paper. Yeah, lots of graphs I thought that were, were useful to look at. Yeah, and, and I would a- have, I'd have killed myself if I, hadn't, if I had to push off again that paper. That's right. Well, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's a changing discussion, right? And we're mm-hmm. all trying to decide when is the right time, how much, and I think, how right, long. Right. <laughs> and whether, whether it's not really telling you whether you should do it or not, I think it's just telling you, you must have that discussion early rather than later. I think that's, that's an important point to take right. to the bedside. Okay. Now that's you're right. up, go ahead, because that's, that paper is cool that you want to talk about. Yeah, so um, this paper, uh, also in pediatrics, uh, burnout and perceptions of stigma and help-seeking behavior among pediatric fellows, first author Anna K. Weiss. Um, And so, you know, we told you that we were going to start including more um, 
discussions about about burnout and how what we could do as a neonatal community. So I thought that th- this was interesting. This is not specific to neonatal fellows, um, but it included um, a lot of pediatric fellows um, at uh, CHOP. Um, so they actually uh, offered uh, this to all of their fellows over the course of a six-week window. Um, so it was a, a survey basically using uh, the Maslach burnout inventory. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that's probably the most common used um, inventory um, in medicine to look at uh, burnout. And so it's a, it's an almost 50 item inventory uh, using Likert type matrices uh, to assess attitudes towards behavioral health treatment. Um, the MBI um, inventory includes three subscales, um, which have been well documented in the medical community. They look at emotional exhaustion, so EE, uh, depersonalization, and low personal accomplishment, um, which they entitle uh, or they substitute for PA. And so, like I said, um, they offered it to um, 288 of their trainees, so fellows across disciplines, um, and about 52% responded. They had 152 fellows participate. Um, And I think one of the things that they tried to do very well um, is that they really tried to reassure anonymity in this testing, um, because I think that was important to getting accurate data. And and it was important for the answers as well when we find out what people answered. Correct. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so if you've ever worked with trainees, they're highly suspicious of getting surveys that ask them about anything. Um, And, you know, in my experience as a chief resident, it didn't matter what we asked or how often we told them that it was safe and anonymous and depersonalized, but they always assumed there was some sort of backdoor way to, for us to find the the data. So um, I guess. And there is, is right? There is, right? For for many things, there there is a way, but um, All of that is to say, I think that the data I'm about to tell you is probably even more impressive than we have reported here. Um, And so they showed that between the subgroup analysis that there was strong positive relationships between emotional exhaustion and depersonalization and between emotional exhaustion and self-reported stress. So not surprisingly, the more tired that fellows were, um, the higher um, these other indices were. Mm-hmm. On average, they reported a stress level of 6.8 out of 10, um, and uh, 53% of their fellows um, met the criteria for a quote-unquote burnout. More than but a half, that, people. More, more than, than, half. than a half. Um, and that that wasn't even, I think, the most striking part of the data. So most fellows reported believing that uh, people in – uh, their administration, their superiors, um, would have negative attitudes about mental health illness and treatment. So they thought 78% of their program directors or chairs, 72% of their attending physicians, and 82% of their patients would hold negative attitudes about mental illness and its treatment. A total of 68% of fellows agreed or strongly agreed that potential employers would pass over their application if they were made aware that they had sought help for a mental health problem during their training. 75, yeah, 75% would hide the fact that they have received counseling. And then this one, this is really bumming me out. 56% agreed or strongly agreed that they, that they thought their patients wouldn't want them as their doctor if they were treated for mental health um, concerns. 
The other thing they did is they looked at the groups of fellows who did meet criteria for burnout, 53% of them versus the fellows who didn't meet criteria with burnout. And those fellows who met criteria for burnout had even higher um, held beliefs of stigma. So odds ratio of 1.2, meaning that they're probably even less likely to get help um, than the fellows uh, who, who didn't meet criteria for yeah. burnout. A total of 79% of fellows with burnout agreed or strongly agreed that future employers would pass over their application if they knew they had sought help for a mental health problem. And 59% of fellows with burnout agreed that most people think less of a person who has sought mental health care. So, uh, I mean, I think this really just introduces um, the problem, the, 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 how deep the problem is, especially for our trainees who are early in their careers. Um, and unfortunately, those feelings don't tend to get better um, as we move into attending hood. Um, and so I thought this was a really valuable paper. Um, I think it shows how much work we have to do as a medical community to reduce uh, reduce stigma, especially uh, for our trainees. Um, and, and they talk about, you know, ways we can do that. We don't, we don't really have all those answers, but it's a good place to start. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Frightening stuff. I think this is a perfect paper to end the journal club on because if you are eager to hear more about this, stay tuned for our guest next week, who is an expert on dealing with burnout and dealing with physicians who feel trapped in medicine and uh, i think you guys will really like that episode and we're gonna also talk about ways in which the incubator is going to try to uh, make a difference when it comes to trainees and mental well-being and so on and so forth but my two cents on the paper is that this every program director should read that and mm -hmm. find ways to implement things to support the mental well-being of their fellows which who, who are at a very crucial moment in their training and who are in a very fragile emotional state between imposter syndrome, learning and dealing with work-life balance. It's just, it's just something that program directors have to take seriously. Yeah. It's such a vulnerable time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think yep. it sets the stage for um, how you respond to your own mental health needs for the rest of your life, the rest of your career and um, whether you seek help or not. So yep. we have work to do. Well, Daphna, thank you so much. We're uh, 10 minutes over. It's not the end mm -hmm. of the world. I think these were good 10 minutes. And yeah. um, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for engaging with us on Twitter. We'll see you next week, Daphna. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikku, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you. <laughs>